Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all kinds of things. Transportation. I am the traffic anchor and transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And coming up in just a little bit, I'll be talking with Richard Truitt. Richard is the engineering and technology reporter at Automotive News. And he also reports on Jaguars and Land Rovers. Richard wrote an article in Automotive News recently called Breaking Up is Hard, GM's Missed Chance to Retain Volt Drivers. Now, I know it doesn't speak to everybody. I get that. But it spoke to me. It spoke to me because I have owned several Chevy Volts, and I'm driving a Chevy Volt, and it is, I think, one of my favorite cars I've ever owned, and I've owned a bunch of interesting cars. And and I'm disappointed that GM is killing it off. And not expanding the technology into larger cars or an SUV. I would buy one in a second if they did that. It really is a a great car. Super low on maintenance. Uh, It's really inexpensive to drive. It's it's a fantastic car. It's actually quite fun. Uh, So Richard, anyway, Druitt will be joining me here in just a minute. And he's very knowledgeable not only about the Volt, since he owned or leased three of them. Uh, and he also is knowledgeable about a whole bunch of other car stuff, and we'll be calling him in Detroit in just a little bit. So we'll talk about uh, what's going on in Detroit and go uh, also talk to him about what's happening on the Volt. If you want to get a hold of the show, you sure can. Here is the email, drivingyoucrazypodcast at gmail.com, and the phone number, 303-832-0217. You can still call that and leave me a message. Uh, That is the number back at the TV station, even though I am still broadcasting from my basement and probably will be for the foreseeable future. Coming up in also just a minute, I'm going to go into the mailbag. Uh, I have a couple interesting mailbag items for you. The biggest news in the last couple of days uh, in the transportation world really has been the news out of the rideshare world as Uber and Lyft were ordered in California to reclassify their drivers as employees and not independent contractors. This is a big deal because this is how not only Uber and Lyft, but a lot of other uh, companies that are just basically apps make their business model where they have average people just being an independent contractor do the work and the company is really just a collection of people working on an app. They're not employing all the drivers and all the delivery people and all of those, uh, all of that stuff. It, it really is. It, it also allows people to independently work for themselves and not be considered an employee. Some like that. Some don't. Uh, California obviously doesn't like it. That's why they took the rideshare companies to court. Now, the lawsuit also stems from this new law in California. They, it's known as AB5. And under this law, that went in effect in January, the companies must prove that workers are free from company control and can perform work outside the usual course of the company's business in order to be classified as independent contractors rather than employees. And this lawsuit accused Uber and Lyft of depriving workers of protections, including giving them minimum wage and overtime and paid sick leave and unemployment insurance, uh, that they would be entitled to as an employee. Well, that that's part of the job. 
the, the job really is, if, if, if you wanted to be or if you are an Uber or Lyft driver or work for DoorDash or the, any of the delivery services, you get to work whenever you want, one hour a day, 10 hours a day, one hour a week, 40 hours a week, whatever you want. That way, you're, you're an independent contractor and you work as much as you want or you, or you don't. But California doesn't like that. And, and Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, they've, they've all put in a whole bunch of money, like $30 million, behind a new ballot initiative there in California. And if it's passed, it would actually exempt them from this AB5 law, but they would still offer some of their drivers some benefits. So it's a concession, if you will, to the AB5 law there in California, where the employees wouldn't be, or the drivers wouldn't be considered as employees, but they would also get a few protections. Now, the mounting legal pressure to reclassify workers in the state of California comes at really an uncertain time for both companies because the the pandemic is ruining their business. Fewer people are going out. Fewer people are are using Uber and Lyft. Uh, Obviously, people are still staying home and not going out to eat and going to nightclubs and bars and and taking business meetings across town. So Uber and Lyft is they're really hurting. And these are companies that really aren't making a whole lot of money, uh, even though they they are worth a lot of money on the stock market. They haven't been really making a whole lot of money. Both Uber and Lyft, of course, are going to be appealing this decision. Okay, let's open up that mailbag and hear from a couple of loyal listeners. The first one is from Walker. Walker says, hi, I want to place an order for, for, for some electric scooter. My specifications are below. Number 78 adult electric scooter with seat. Kindly get back to me with pricing quote plus sales tax. Let me know how soon the order can be available for shipping after payment. And also let me know if the payment options you accept. I wait your immediate response and looking forward to doing business with you. Thank you, Walker. Well, Walker... Thanks for writing in, but uh, maybe you haven't heard, but I I don't sell electric scooters. <laughs> if I did sell electric scooters, th- that seems like it would be a fine electric scooter to sell you. I, I haven't looked up the number 78 adult electric scooter with seat, but I'm sure that's a fine model. Probably better than the one without seat where you're having to stand up the whole time, I would think. Because I, I don't really don't know. Maybe, maybe Walker, you should try the scooter store, and they can give you a hand with your scooter needs. Um, anyway, so that was uh, mailbag item number one. Uh, item number two from the mailbag, Walt from Denver writes, a couple of people that have moved to Colorado have told me they know a loophole in the law They state that they cannot be ticketed for not registering their vehicles if the out-of-state license plate year sticker is not displayed. I've noticed dozens of -of out-of-state plates without expiration stickers in parking lots. In fact, in the downtown parking garage I frequent, I have noticed over the years the same vehicles with non-Colorado license plates without year expiration stickers. Is the loophole a legitimate way to avoid having to pay vehicle licensing registration fees or are non-Colorado licensed vehicles not being ticketed and given a free pass? That, again, from Walt in Denver. Now, I know this is a 
Colorado issue, but it's really not. It's more of a countrywide issue. And this question really stems from how expensive it is to register a vehicle in the state of Colorado. We're talking hundreds or even thousands of dollars. It is one of the most expensive states to register a vehicle. My registration fee, I just paid the other day for my 2014 Chevy Volt, was $270 for a used, a six-year-old used vehicle. $270. I've paid upwards of over $1,000 for new vehicles that weren't that expensive. We're in the $35,000 to $40,000 range, and I've had to pay a registration fee of $1,000. And you, if you buy something that's really nice, then you're going to be paying several thousand dollars for registration fees here in Colorado. So it is a major disincentive for people to want to go register a vehicle, whether they're from out of state and it's a used car, or whether they're buying a, a car in state and having it registered in Colorado. The, see, this, the way the state calculates the fee is from the year the car is made and they use the original taxable value when the vehicle is new. It's the reason that I won't buy a new car in Colorado ever again. Because in most other states, the registration fee is is lower than $100. So that's why we're seeing so many people not wanting to register their car here in my home state. So getting back to Walt's question, can someone drive on Colorado roads with an expired out-of-state plate for a long time and seemingly get away with it? Yes. Is this a legitimate loophole to avoid paying Colorado registration fees or registration fees in their home state? No, it's not. Now, the state law in Colorado says after becoming a Colorado resident, you must transfer your driver's license within 30 days, register your vehicle within 90 days. For law enforcement, it really comes down to stopping the vehicle and figuring out if the person is a resident when they became a resident and if they're in violation of the law at that point. Obviously, just having a plate from out of state is not probable cause for police to stop a vehicle and then check how long they've been a resident. And not all states require a year tab to be shown on their plate. That can hinder knowing for the law enforcement if the or or, or anybody if the plate ex- expired just by looking. However, if a if, if driver is stopped for any other reason, the, the police will check the registration of the plates. If it comes back as expired in the home state, then the driver could be charged with driving with expired plates or not having valid registration. And even if a person qualifies under the law to be eligible as a resident of Colorado, then they still might not claim residency in Colorado. They might still claim residency in another state. In cases like that, the vehicle owner is still required to keep their vehicle registration up to date in their home state. The only way to really know if that's the case is by asking the owner of the vehicle. There's a lot of cities that are on state borders that have people working in one or or vice versa in two different states. My brother used to do that. Uh, I think he was uh, when he was in um, Kansas City, and he was uh, going back and forth. So I think he had to pay taxes both in Kansas and Can- and uh, Missouri when he was there in Kansas City. But in the state, in in the case of a state like Texas, the license plate validation sticker. It's actually not a sticker on the license plate like it is in Colorado and many other states. They issue a decal that's supposed to be displayed on the inside of the driver's side of the windshield. 
New York and the District of Columbia also use windshield stickers rather than stickers on your license plate. New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania, they don't even require a validation sticker at all. Not on your license plate, not on the windshield, nothing. You, you can't know from looking at a Pennsylvania license plate if it is valid just by looking at it because there's no sticker anywhere. The DMV there says there is no longer any visual proof of registration. The only registration certificate is carried inside the vehicle. That means police check all license plates for validity solely by means of computer. And it's for a cost-cutting change is what they say there in Pennsylvania. Also in Pennsylvania, the registration is a flat fee for passenger cars of only $36. So if my car, my 2014 Chevy Volt, was registered in Pennsylvania, it would cost me $36, not $270. There's a lot I could do with uh, $234. I can think of a lot of cool things I could get for $234 rather than giving it to the state of Colorado for my registration fee. In Texas, they have a flat fee of $50.75 for cars and lighter pickup trucks. In New Jersey, the most expensive registration they have tops out at $84 for a passenger car or commuter van. $84 compared to $270 for a used 2014 six-year-old Chevy Volt. All right. Well, let's say for argument's sake, a person from Pennsylvania moves to Colorado, doesn't claim residency in Pennsylvania anymore, can legally be considered a Colorado resident. When that person doesn't register their vehicle with the Colorado DMV after 90 days, that person is technically breaking the law. Then if that same driver lets the Pennsylvania registration expire and still drives in Colorado, that driver again is breaking the law. And even though that scenario is frustrating to us who abide by the law, and pay the hundreds or even thousands of dollars in Colorado vehicle registration fees, there'll be, there will be people who break the law as a way to save money. One of our counties on the south side of Denver, Douglas County, allows people to report suspected out-of-state plates or expired temporary tags to that motor vehicle department. So you go to the website and you go to the link, and then you type in the, the tag and you send it to them and then they follow up and forward any of the responses to local law enforcement where that vehicle is located and, and see if maybe if, uh, if it's expired. So at least something is, you could maybe do something about it because I know it's a real mad, it's a, it's a torque off factor. It is for me. I'm always looking at license plate registrations, and I see them all the time. And then I've also heard that a lot of folks aren't registering their uh, cars, not only because it costs so much, but also because the insurance costs them too much. So they're not gonna—they're driving around without insurance and without a valid registration. That's just perfect. If you want to know about all of the license plates, if you want to know more about license plates, more than you could ever want to know, uh, the index of U.S. license plates pages, just search on Google for index of U.S. license plate pages, and they have a collection of all the license plates from all the states and how they've changed over the years. So there you go. 
And as, as I just talked about, it's no secret that I own a Chevy Volt and that it is maybe my favorite car that I've ever owned and I've had some really neat cars over the years. General Motors rolled out the last of the Volts from the assembly line in February of last year, killing it off and infuriating Volt lovers like me. Someone else who is upset by what GM did is Richard Truitt. Richard wrote a story for Automotive News called Breaking Up is Hard, GM's Missed Chance to Retain Volt Drivers. Richard is the engineering and technology reporter at Automotive News and also reports on Jaguars and Land Rovers. His 15-part restoration series about a Triumph TR7 he wrote last summer won an Automotive Heritage Journalism Award for Best Repair Restoration Story. You can find him on Twitter at Rich S. Truitt. Rich, thanks for being here on the Driving You Crazy podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Let's start with your story in Automotive News about your Chevy Volt. I guess it was the one that your wife was driving most of the time. You and your wife just turned in your third Volt lease. How'd you like driving the car? And how'd you like the difference between the different generations of Volts as you were driving them over the years? Well, I, I tell you, I think that the Volt will go down in Chevy history as a very special car. Um, my wife got her first Volt, I want to say it was in 2012, in the first generation one. And uh, I found it to be really an intriguing car to drive because it, let me see, let me see if I can find the right way to describe it. It challenged you to be a better driver in terms of the way you managed energy. And what I mean by that is when it was in electric mode, uh, you could, by adjusting your driving habits, you could stretch out that range that you got on electricity before it switched over to gasoline. And um, depending on your daily driving route, you could probably do most of your driving on electricity if you drove the car, uh, you know, not not what we would call hypermiling, but carefully. And so... When you drove the Volt, you were always very conscious of how you spent your energy. And we noticed um, that the Volt changed in some ways. Like, uh, it would change with the weather. For instance, on a, a spring day where the temperature ranged from the 50s to the 70s, you would unplug in the morning and your driving range would be, I don't know, somewhere between 50 to 70-something miles per charge. In the winter, it would go down a little bit. But it was always, uh, it was never a boring car to drive. There was always something new and interesting to like about it. And I just felt like the car had a lot of, a lot of personality. It had a lot of um, cool technical features. And it was just a great car for the money. And as you were mentioning, it's not just an electric car. The big difference between the Volt and a hybrid is it's really not a hybrid. It's always on electric. And I have to explain this to people all the time, that it always is on electric, yet it has a gasoline generator in the front to generate electricity. It doesn't, like a Prius, have a regular combustion engine to power the car and then has batteries to help assist it to get extra gas mileage. So it's different in that way. It's not a true hybrid like everybody else is driving. The Volt is really a purely electric car. It is, and and I think that was, you know, GM is, is not one of these companies that's going to copy anybody's um, strategy for doing something. They took a look at how they could do a do a hybrid and, and make it their own and do it differently, and I think they made a better mousetrap, to be honest with you. I really do. Um, 
the, the, we had three volts. They were all excellent cars with, with never any kind of mechanical problems at all. We, we might have had an oil change once or twice a year, maybe. We might have used four or five tanks of gasoline a year, maybe. But mostly, it was an electric car, and it, it got my wife thinking about, okay, our next vehicle is going to be an electric car. We don't know what it is yet, but she doesn't want to go back to an internal combustion engine. And I really think that is the mission of the Volt, is to sort of be that intermediate step where you can go from the old-fashioned internal combustion engine car to um, an electric car like the Volt, but if you have to go on a long trip, you can still take the Volt because after you run out of electricity, the gasoline engine uh, creates the electricity for the, for the motor. And unlike uh, a Tesla or some other car, you don't have to stop and wait for it to charge up. And I, I think that that's the legacy of what the Volt will be. It will show people that uh, electric cars are really fun cars to drive and, and really um, they are the next um, powertrain that we're going to see in, in cars. And that was the technology that was really showed off by GM when the Volt first came out. They drove it across the country because they could. I recently saw a video, Tesla owner, who was driving, I think it was across the country, and I guess he didn't want to stop at the supercharger stations because in the Tesla you can program in on a mapping system there all the supercharger stations so you can continue uh, and take long-distance journeys. Well, I guess he didn't want to do that, so he, when he needed a charge, he opened up the trunk and he pulled out a Honda generator and then gassed that up plugged it into his car, started it up, and he, he charged up his car with a, with a generator. He basically turned his Tesla into a Volt. Well, your, your listeners have got to be wondering at this point, well, why the heck did GM discontinue it? Right. And it's a, quest, it's a question I asked. And, you know, um, it's, it's a confusing kind of situation because even though the Volt sold fairly well, they, they sold 177,000 of them in the entire production run, and that's a pretty good... That's, you know, for a hybrid car, that's not bad. But they couldn't make any money off it. And I don't know if that has more to do with with GM's internal costs and business model or the fact that they maybe didn't sell as many as they could have. But it just seems to me that they invested a billion dollars in the Vault powertrain that they should have found a way to amortize that better by putting it in the type of vehicle that consumers want to buy today. And that would be something like an Equinox or a Trailblazer or something with maybe a little bit more utility. I'm speaking with Richard Truitt. He's a reporter at Automotive News covering engineering and technology. Why don't you think that Chevy ever expanded the technology into an SUV? Because if they did, I definitely, I'm sure you would be too, one of the first ones into the showroom floor to buy an SUV with that same technology the Volt has? Well, we, we probably would have gone right from the Volt to the next vehicle. But GM is um, on a mission to go from the internal combustion engine to electric vehicles with no intermediate stops in between. They already have the Chevy Bolt that's out, and um, it's, it's sold fairly well. And there's a bunch of, uh, there's probably, I think, 22 electric vehicles coming in the next three or four years. In fact, um, just last week, they introduced the Cadillac Lyric, which is a rather large-sized electric SUV uh, with about a 300-mile range that will be out late in 2022. So GM is going full electric. It's part of their 
corporate mantra of zero crashes, uh, zero emissions, and um, zero, zero, zero. I forget what the other zero is, but it's, they don't want, uh, they, they are trying to break free of the gasoline engine, and so um, zero emissions is one of them. By the way, your third zero is zero congestion. Zero crashes, zero, zero emission, right. yeah, zero congestion. Yeah. Do you think it's a mistake for many of the car makers, obviously GM is going full electric there in Detroit, to shift away totally from the internal combustion engine and go purely electric? Isn't there still room for some internal combustion engines and for hybrids at the same time? Well, GM is the only automaker that says that they're going to eventually be full electric, but the internal combustion engine is not going away anytime soon. Uh, think of like a Ford F-150 or a Chevy Silverado or a Dodge Ram pickup truck. Those are going to have gasoline engines or diesel engines for a very, very long time. So, And, and large SUVs like Expeditions and Navigators and, and Suburbans and all those, are, they're going to have... They're going to have um, gasoline engines for quite a while. But the smaller cars can be electric. There's battery technology is advancing at a very, very quick rate. Toyota is probably about two years away from introducing solid-state batteries, and that could be the breakthrough that really makes electric cars viable for a lot of people. We don't know for sure yet, but these solid-state batteries have a lot of promise for um, driving ranges in 400 miles and beyond, which is, when you think about how far you go on a full tank of gasoline, that's equal to or better than in, uh, for most cars. So battery and, and, and electric vehicle technology is advancing quickly, and um, the internal combustion engine is going to move to a smaller and smaller part of the market, mostly just bigger vehicles. When you own a pure electric car, as we were talking about the range, it has been a problem with some of the electric cars, like the Bolt that has a range of under 100 miles. The Tesla has a pretty good range of oh, 300 or so. But as we were talking about, and we both experienced with our Volt, the range really depends on how hard you're driving it. If you're driving it on the highway, driving it on side roads, if you are experiencing very hot or very cold temperatures. And I think it really changes how you fuel up a car. My wife has a 2013 Lexus and she just drives around until she sees the light go off and then she pulls over at a gas station. Five minutes later, boom, she's gone and good for another week. But for an electric car, you really have to think about and have a good, better mindset about charging it up, at least right now, with the current technology. I think there has to be a different mindset overall for people to make that leap between what they're driving now and how they're fueling it now to what they could be and will be driving in the future. You know, that was the beauty of the Volt, because my wife worked about we're, uh, about 10, 12 miles away from her job where we live. And so, uh, you know, in the morning, she would unplug the car, drive to work. Sometimes she could plug in at work. And um, if not, then she would drive home, plug in at night. And then every, every morning, she basically had a full tank of gas. And so, or a full tank rather, a full battery. So the equivalent of a of a full tank of gas every day. So yes, it does require a change in mindset, but it's not at all inconvenient. The electric um, uh, charging infrastructure is starting to grow now at a pretty big pace. And in fact, GM made an announcement a week or so ago about uh, a deal they have with this company called uh, EVGo, which is making. Um, um, electric charging stations um, uh, easier to find. They're putting out uh, thousands of them around the country. 
You say in your piece that it took about 10 minutes or so for you to end your eight years of loyalty to a brand. Is it just that you're upset with GM that they killed off the vault? Or is it that you turned in your vehicle and looked around the showroom floor and there's nothing there from Chevy that is interesting to you? Well, we walked. We went to see the dealership to turn the Volt in. We also walked by the Chevy Bolt, and we saw price tags like in the 40s and $45,000. And, you know, one thing GM could have done is they could have had an incentive for Volt owners coming out of the car to, to have a special deal to get into the Bolt, and there wasn't any there. And so we're pretty sure that the next vehicle that we have is going to, that we buy is going to have an electric powertrain of some sort. So there just wasn't anything there for us. Um, there are other automakers that are stepping up and offering things like Ford has got a, um, a plug-in electric version of the Escape that's just now coming out. Uh, Hyundai and Kia have got plug-in hybrid SUVs. So there, there are plenty of competitors out there. We just haven't decided what it's going to be yet. We, we of course, would have liked to stick with Chevrolet or, or because it's been a very good brand and, and the, you know, I, I feel like the, the Volt delivered everything that GM promised it would, and, and based on that, they deserved to have our business, but they didn't have a product for us. Why don't you think any other car maker has picked up this technology and included it in their car? It picked up the baton and, and run with it, if you will. It's a very expensive, it's just very expensive to design, develop, engineer, test, certify, validate, and put into production all this all this stuff. It it takes years and well, GM spent a billion dollars on the Volt, that ought to tell you. Um, but why don't you think any other company has just torn down the Volt and start building another one? Oh, are you saying that maybe GM should license the powertrain to another company? Yeah, sure. Or at least the technology of putting a generator inside the car so it's always generating electricity and you can keep going at an extended range. Well, BMW did that with the one series um, hybrid that they had out. And I, I don't know if they're still making that, but um, it, it has been tried by some other automakers with not great success, to be honest with you. Uh, the Chevy Volt was the best execution of it. I'm speaking with Richard Truitt. He's a reporter at Automotive News covering engineering and technology. You can reach Richard on Twitter at Rich S. Truitt. Let's talk a little bit about how the pandemic has changed the cars that are coming out of the assembly line and how they are being built right now. Do you think that the future will be changed because of the pandemic and how they're building cars right now? Do you see the amount of cars that are coming off the assembly line changing as well? Yeah, I think that uh, it's it's proven very difficult I don't, it's proven very difficult to build cars at the volume that that auto factories are supposed to run at because I don't know if you've ever been in a plant before, but some oh, some yeah. of the work that goes on is is close quarters. You know, you think of um, a car coming down the assembly line and the the instrument panel going in or the seats going in. You've got workers there that are fairly close together, and so um, there have been uh, some plants that have reopened and then have had issues with with COVID um, infections. And so uh, I think automakers are still feeling the way around of how to deal with that. And the inventory of new cars is fairly low for some automakers. There are some GM dealers, for instance, that don't have enough cars. And there are certain types of vehicles like pickup trucks that are in short supply for everybody. The next big 
thing in automotive technology is obviously fully automated autonomous cars where they are driving for us. How do you see that coming down the road? Obviously, 5G has been an integral part of how we get there with 5G along the roadways. Once that's more established, then cars could talk to each other. They could talk to the traffic lights. We could get the infrastructure in place. But until that happens, do you think that we are going to be driving in automated cars in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Let me be as clear as a bell going off in the morning. <laughs> Never. It's not going to happen. Really? The, the infrastructure is in this country, the roads and bridges, and all the things that would enable that to happen are 100 years down the road. Now, that's not to say that some self-driving features won't come out. They will. But level five driving and where there's no steering wheel and no brake pedals and no ability for the human being to take over the car, it's not going to happen. I mean, think of it this way. An airplane can't even fly itself from takeoff to landing. And, and, and think of the traffic in the sky. There's quite, quite a bit less of it. Now, when you think of the hundreds of millions of cars on the road and, and the information it takes to manage all that so that there are no crashes, it, it just isn't going to happen. But... That's not to say that autonomous vehicles don't have a place. They do. Think of what they call a, a geo-fenced area, like a college campus or a, or a military base or or maybe even an airport with um, uh, you know roads that, that run to parking lots and whatnot. You can have vehicles that, that can run in those areas by themselves, I think. But to drive themselves on, on a street in a city, it just, I don't see it happening. I, I don't think the technology will be able to react as quickly as a human, and I don't believe that the data can travel to and from the vehicle quick enough. You are the first person that I've spoken to and that I've asked that question to that says that we will never be fully autonomous on the roadways. I've heard people say that it's going to be slow in coming, that it could be a process, especially to mix people in cars with fully automated cars and I'm actually more on your side than others saying that it doesn't seem feasible that we're going to be able to have fully autonomous cars unless you have it in a very closed self-defined maybe urban area that you can just keep the self-driving cars away from human driven cars well you know I think I think the overall goal to get to what they call level five which is um, where the human being can't take over. I think the overall goal is good because each step closer to that makes the car safer and makes it more functional. Now, you've got vehicles today, like with Cadillac Super Cruise and some Tesla vehicles that can drive themselves. You know, they can go down highways and, and they can do some of the things, but, but they can't drive themselves all the time in all situations with 100% safety, and, and that's what we're really talking about. Because if you can't have 100% safety, then it's 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 you know then the, and then and the driver has to take over at some point. Then that's not it's not 100% autonomous. It's just I don't think it's going to happen.
I'm speaking with Richard Truitt. He's a reporter for engineering technology at Automotive News. I, I posed this question to somebody a while back about uh, autonomous cars. I don't know if you remember the movie called iRobot with uh, Will Smith, but the the robot had to make a choice between saving Will Smith or saving this child that went after a crash, went over a bridge into the water. And I think do the cars would have to make a similar choice. Let's say there's a, a bus full of kids that are coming uh, over a ridge there on an icy road in Michigan, and you're driving the other way in your autonomous car. Well, by no fault of anybody's, the bus just loses control because it hits a patch of ice, starts sliding, and as the bus uh, is going to careen into your car, does your car then, because it's on fully autonomous mode, protect your life or crash into the bus killing kids and saving you or drives off the road, maybe killing or injuring you and saving all the kids? You know, it's, it's funny because those questions have been asked by people like me to the engineers and executives who are working to bring uh, more autonomous type driving to to the real world. And, you, you know, those are questions that they wrestle with too. And I don't know that there's a clear answer yet. I don't know that there's the same answer is going to work for everybody. And when you think about all the different driving situations that human beings can get in, how, how can engineers think of, how can, how can, how can engineers, um, let me try to find the right words here. There are so many different scenarios. I don't believe that there's, it's possible for all the programming and software to be written that would cover every situation a human being can get into with an automobile. And if you can't get to that point, then what happens when that bus comes careening over over the hill on an icy patch? Uh, what happens if there's no software that tells the car what to do? See, that's one reason why I don't think we're ever going to get to level five autonomous driving, because there's just too many situations that people can get into with cars that, that the, the engineers writing the software may not be able to think of. And then you have, obviously, the difference between rural areas that uh, it, it would be just way too cost uh, prohibitive to have that kind of technology out in a rural area here in Colorado. You go 20 miles just to the east of me, and there's really a whole lot of nothing between me and Kansas City. Um, now, yeah. around you and around the East Coast, there is more infrastructure and more people, obviously, but it's just too mm -hmm. cost ex uh, uh, prohibitive to, to build that kind of technology out in, I could go 100 miles north, and, and you won't find a person for another hundred miles yeah you know let me just clarify one thing can engineers build a car that can drive itself that can park itself that can do the things that humans do behind the wheel yes they absolutely can do that and they have done that can they make it work in the real world when there are you know in heavy traffic and and there are many other cars coming and going and turning in front of them that's where the situation gets a little muddled do you think that fuel prices the way they are now and foreseeably because traffic obviously is down considerably since the pandemic, it's probably not going to pick up for another year, maybe two. And the cost of gasoline has been down. The use of oil has been down. Do you think that's hurting our uh, perception of buying EV cars or having them uh, built in the future? It doesn't help. You know, the problem with an, with an electric vehicle is that the drivetrain is more expensive than a gasoline or a diesel drivetrain. Uh, you have to charge customers for that, that extra technology. And if there's not a payback or at least a break-even point, some people aren't willing to step up and pay the extra. 
But then there are other people who don't view it like that at all. They look at it, the situation is as if I'm helping the environment by keeping tailpipe emissions out of the atmosphere. So there are a lot of factors driving it, but generally speaking, I think most people tend to vote with their with their pocketbook. And here at Automotive News, we've seen that before. When gas hits four four fifty a gallon, five bucks a gallon, sales of fuel efficient cars go through the roof, right? Trucks and SUVs tend to slow down a bit in sales. Right now the, the low fuel prices aren't helping, but it's not going to slow the overall trend toward EVs down simply because globally Places like China and Europe are waging war on CO2 and other types of emissions and fairly, pretty much mandating that EVs um, come to market. And so these companies being global in nature are going to have to do this engineering anyway. So we'll get EVs here, maybe just not as fast as everybody else. Yeah, when I first bought my Volt, it was purely economic reasons. I, I thought it was an interesting car when I first saw it. And I, I saw it when it first came out during a media tour uh, when they first re when GM was first uh, touting this car, and, and I, I had a chance to ride in it, and I thought it was pretty interesting. And so when I went to the dealer looking at it, the the price tag this was in 2014. It was a yeah. it was about forty five thousand dollars for the car. Now uh, I, I was never going to pay forty five thousand dollars for a car, but yeah. they they gave me a lease option on this because they thought the value of the car was going to hold up where they thought they were going to be able to resell it for about 35 or so thousand dollars. So I basically mm -hmm. for three years paid uh, $10,000 for the use of that car, which basically cost me no nothing in, in, uh, in gas, in uh, oil changes, in other maintenance. It was all covered. So it was a super duper great lease deal for me. And then when I turned in the car, it didn't have a value of more than $15,000 or so. Um, and, and it was it was quite sad to to, to see that uh, the change in how GM or at least the dealer thought it was going to hold its value, and the Volt never did end up holding its value. And if you want to get a used one right now, you can actually get a really low mile used one for not much money. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why they decided that continuing the powertrain in another vehicle just wasn't a good idea because uh, you, in addition to being more costly to produce and sell, uh, they're probably not making money on, on leases. And so uh, I, th I think that's, you know, was a, a big factor in the fact that they phased it out. But as you said, uh, there are a lot of good used low mile ones out there and the Volt, even though it's not in production, will be with us for many, many years. Uh, have you decided to replace it? Are you going to buy uh, uh, buy one? I bought my uh, 2014 one, um, and so I still have – it's my second one. I bought a brand new one. I turned the old one, the old lease in, and then uh, bought a new one off the dealer's lot that was severely discounted. Are you going to uh, replace it with maybe an old t Triumph that you had uh, <laughs> there in storage, or are you going to uh, get something else? We're, we're, we're probably going to get another, if not a pure electric, then another hybrid. Um, right now, I tell you that due to the, the COVID situation, we are being extremely conservative financially, and we can get by on two cars that we have right now, and so that's what we're doing. I'm sure it's hurting your uh, business as well, I would think. Is, is it hurting you uh, personally, and is it hurting you professionally? Nah, we're, we're just adapting like most other Americans, you know, we're... We are curious to see how the, the pandemic plays out and when we get back to some sort of normal. 
right now I think we're kind of like in the middle of the hurricane and we don't really know um, how things are going to shake out. And so um, I think that uh, until we have a clearer picture of the employment situation and and all the other things that are that are affecting us as as it is other Americans, we're just not going to buy any more cars right now. Yeah, I think that's hurting. I talked to uh, Tim Jackson from the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association last week, and he was telling me similar uh, outlook is that uh, car sales are down and the dealership, the numbers of people going into dealers is down, even though I've seen plenty of uh, new car registration uh, plates on vehicles around me. It still seems that there are fewer people, like you just said, uh, willing to take that financial risk just because you don't know what's going to happen in the next, what, two or three, even months. <laughs> let alone yeah, years. well, we've noticed at Automotive News, we've noticed that uh, sales of used cars are way up and prices for used cars are way up. And, you know, if we do buy something, it's going to be used. So, um, you know, it's not like people are not buying cars or just maybe maybe holding off right now on that new car until they get a better idea of what's going on. And that means parts are actually going to become more of a commodity as well, since people are going to try to keep their uh, older cars up. As you, uh, I read another story last week or a week before about how uh, older people are holding onto their cars a couple of years longer. Therefore, parts are going to become more of a commodity as well. The average age of the American car is 11.9 years. And chances are that one in four cars that pass you is 16 years old or more, according to uh, IHS Market, which is a consulting firm here in Detroit. They, they came out with a study about this last week. And indeed, I have a couple times a week been driving a 41-year-old car to work, my old uh, trusty Triumph TR7, which is uh, restored now. And a couple times a week, I take it to work. And, uh, you know, it may not be the fastest and most modern, but it, it works pretty well. So... For now, that's the plan anyway. Yeah, for now. And it's uh, it's uh, congratulations on your 15-part restoration series that won that Automotive Heritage Journalism Award for Best Repair Restoration okay. Story. That's pretty Thanks. nice. Yeah, uh, and you know, those are fun cars. I'm originally uh, born and raised in Detroit till I was in uh, ninth grade, and then the family moved to Atlanta, so I went where the food was. And, um, yeah, so I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Detroit native as well, and I have one uncle who still lives up in – uh, I guess he's, I think he's still up in the Bloomfield area, Bloomfield Hills or Birmingham right in there. Um, All yeah, right. so I okay. am a Detroit native at heart and I, and I, and I, I love the city, but I also hate the city because of what's happened to it over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years. Well, I tell you the, if you haven't been here lately, you haven't been here because Detroit has in the last five years or so really, really had a bit of a renaissance and some of the old rundown areas are being revitalized and it's a vibrant city, a young city and um, I think it's got a little bit of a, a hip, hipness to it and I've been here since 2001, moved here from Florida and I never thought that I would see the renaissance that's happening in Detroit that's happening today. It, it's really something to behold. That's great news to hear because when I was there, it was uh, it was a dump, and I wouldn't wor wouldn't w wish uh, having somebody even my even my worst enemy move to Detroit at that time. It was it was pretty bad. There were some inner city areas that were not too uh, far off from, say, Berlin at the end of World yeah. War II. It was pretty bad, but those places are pretty much gone now. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, thank you uh, so much, Richard, for yeah. joining me here and uh, explaining all this good stuff. I, I really appreciate your time and your insight today. Thank you for having me. No, thanks again, Richard, for being here when...
Richard said we won't see fully autonomous cars for a hundred years. My jaw hit the ground. And not because it was the first time that we've heard somebody say that, but I agree with him. And it's the first time somebody said that that I agree with because the infrastructure is just not in place and it won't be for a long time. I was just driving home from taking the, the my girls to go play putt-putt yesterday and I'm just looking at the road. And and there's there there are so many steps to getting full autonomy, not only the technology of the vehicle, but the infrastructure of the actual road. And I I just it's just not there. I I think 5G technology will help out cars talk to each other and talk to traffic lights. And there will be some great advances once 5G is really in place on all the roadways and connected to the cars. Um, But I'm concerned about how much that's going to cost us and how much it's going to cost to get your car connected. I I couldn't justify connecting my my car to the internet right now unless I, I had to do it for it to operate. Or the price has to be something ridiculously cheap, like one or two or three dollars a month for me to connect my car to the internet. Again, maybe for it to work or to get a couple of extra features, uh, something like that. But but I'm I'm not going to just pay to drive my car and have it connected to the internet. But I also think that there was going to be a, a a big difference now, especially in the next. 5, 10, 15, 20 years, as more connected cars come online, there will be a difference and, and a separation between the people who can afford that technology and could afford getting autonomous cars to the people who, who can't. And not just for the people who, who want to drive their old 64 Chevy uh, pickup or, or their classic car. That's, that's completely different. But I think there's going to be the average person driving either a used car, uh, and, and even if it's, let's say, 50 years down the road, and you have a used car that can't connect without some kind of extra fee, there's going to be a, a divide between those who can pay and those who can't. And it reminds me of a story I just saw uh, from AAA uh, on my email the other day, how driving technology in cars fails every 10 miles or so, and that fully autonomous vehicles are a long way away. You know what? I'm going to call Skyler, Skyler McKinley, who works over at AAA here uh, locally. I'll give him a call, and maybe we'll have him on for next week and talk about this, uh, because he's, uh, well, at least we'll see what he says and, and what AAA thinks about autonomous technology and how far it is down the road. Anyway, that's uh, a look at the show. Thanks again for Rich, uh, to Richard. If you want to get a hold of that article, you can see it on the description of the show right here. So thanks again for listening. Thanks for being here. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.